Good morning, church. How are you? Welcome to Crosspoint. If we haven't met, my name is Bruce Garner. I met at probably eight or ten new people on the way in. We hope to make you feel welcome. Um, we'd love to, uh, to know that you're here if you'll take a moment to fill out the connection card that has been mentioned. And I have some good news for the whole church. Uh, every year, uh, as you know, heart, missions is at the heartbeat of this church. And every year at Christmas time, we put Jesus on the Christmas list in our financial giving because it's his birthday, and it'd be weird not to give him a present since it's his birthday, just to give presents to ourselves rather than to him. And we think, as Pastor Byron was mentioning, our missionaries. Uh, we send a substantial amount of money out week by week, month by month to support missionaries all around the world. But at Christmas time, we dig a little deeper, and this year's goal was $50,000 in the Christmas missions offering. We are just over $69,000, ladies and gentlemen, and it's not even Christmas time. But see, that's just a spreadsheet. Let me tell you what a difference it makes. I've known uh, a missionary of ours known, uh, named Tim Downs for a very long time. We've only recently started supporting him. Uh, he's been in various places, including Africa and then Belgium, and now he's back in Ivory Coast, Africa. And I asked him a couple years ago, when it's Christmas time, please remind me, because I'm scatterbrained, remind me of a need or a project that you may have, and we will do what we can to help from our Christmas missions offering. On December 5th, he sent me this message from Ivory Coast. Good evening, I just realized it's that time of year again. Smiley emoji, since you can't see this. You should know there was a smiley emoji there. We are currently in an urgent search for property in Tisale, I don't know how to pronounce it, a town between here and the coast. It's an exciting place for a church plant, and we've been actively working it for a few years now. It looks like it will take about $4,500 to purchase a suitable property. The search is heated up because we just learned that the pastor has been given three months to find a new place to live. Yikes! We would really appreciate it if you could include a portion of this in the Christmas missions offering this year. We appreciate so much your role in the work here at Ivory Coast. Blessings, Tim. Well, because of your generosity, I was able to write back a few hours later, well, I have some good news. We will be able to take care of that for you. We will send $4,500. And he said, wow, thank you. So, folks, for $4,500, we've purchased property for a whole new church to get started in Ivory Coast, Africa. That's the difference it makes. It's not just a spreadsheet. It's not just pictures. It reaches actual people. We're career missionaries who have given their lives for decades to serve Jesus and preach Jesus overseas are immediately helped with resources we have that they would struggle to gather themselves. So thank you very much. Since I was able to give him that good news and we together have given the money, I just wanted you to hear that. I'm going to put my phone over here in the hopes that it will not ring. That'd be embarrassing, wouldn't it? If I interrupted my own teaching with a phone call. I've taken steps as far as I can tell that it won't happen, but it's me, folks, and technology. Who knows? If you have your Bible, and if you don't, I hope you'll grab one from the seat near you. I'd like you to open it with me to the Gospel of Luke, please. In Luke chapter 1, please. Have
Have any of you been misunderstood this week? You have an awkward conversation where even as you're still talking, you can tell the other person is taking it the wrong way. You're giving offense, so you're desperately trying to fix it mid-paragraph. Did that happen to anybody else this week? Happens to me. When I was in seminary, uh, most of my studies, of course, were in Bible and theology, but a lot of them were in things uh, related to intercultural studies and cultural anthropology, because I was on our, my wife and I were on our way to the field as missionaries ourselves, and I'll never forget something an anthropologist taught me. He said, every conversation is a cross-cultural encounter. Everybody that's married already knows that. Everybody who's had a long-time friend knows that. Anybody who's had siblings knows that. It's hard to communicate effectively with other people. We say the wrong thing or it's taken in the wrong way. Offense is given. I grew up in Mexico as the son of missionaries, and one of my favorite things, being a native Spanish speaker, because I was too young to remember when my parents uh, took me there, was watching adult missionaries struggle to learn the language and the culture. Yes, that's a very jerky, punky attitude for a kid to have, but I was a child, okay? I, I've mostly outgrown it, but I delighted in being seven years old and watching a grown man struggle through a sermon and say the wrong thing. For instance, one famous missionary was preaching about the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and the mission of the Spanish word for trips or journeys is viaje. And he kept saying the word vieja. Some of you speak Spanish and you already got that. Vieja is an old lady. So he kept saying, Paul had these wonderful old ladies. And some of them were very difficult. And sometimes it was dangerous. But they were productive. And, he had, and just vieja, vieja, vieja. We were all enjoying it so much, the congregation never took time to correct him. We just kind of took that as a bonus that went along with the actual Bible teaching that he was doing. That was nothing, though, compared to the guy who was giving an altar call and asking people to commit their lives to Christ and, you know, get serious with God. And at the end, he was trying to draw those decisions in and nail that down to the floor. And these words aren't even alike. His American English-speaking brain just got confused, and what he asked the people to do was, if you will make this commitment, please raise your right leg. <laughs> and of course, it just destroyed the congregation, right? Everybody thinks this is the funniest thing ever. And those of us who speak in public, especially those of us who preach the Bible, maybe we can feel a little insecure when we know that we've lost the congregation, and his brain didn't make the connection. So he said, folks, I hear the laughter. And I can only believe that that is fear, nerves, maybe it's spiritual warfare. I just want you to know, we've all done this before. So if you will make your commitment today, please raise your right leg. Well, another wave of laughter until, and this is always the way with the youth group, a teenage boy helpfully laid down in the back pew and stuck his right leg way up and the poor guy realized in that moment what he had done and it's happened to me even though I speak both languages I've done it just because I'm dumb not because I'm learning he lost the congregation never got him back that's one of the perils of cross-cultural communication you don't even have to speak different languages though you ever seen grown adults make themselves make fools out of themselves when a baby is around 
It's baby talk and cooing and kneeling down and crawling along with, and suddenly your vocabulary is reduced to about 12 words. Now, why is that? Why is the missionary struggling and embarrassing himself that way? Why have I, even though I don't, I, I don't have little children anymore and no grandchildren, why do I sometimes become very, very childlike in the presence of a little kid or a baby? Because of love. I want to communicate. I want to help that kid learn the language. I want that kid to know that I care about them. That's what's driving all of it. And as we approach Christmas season, what I want you to see in the Gospel of Luke is that the greatest cross-cultural encounter in the history of mankind, and it will never be repeated, it was a once and forever in history event, was that the eternal Son of God, Jesus, who eternally is God and is with the Father, bridged the greatest gap of all. From uncreated, eternal, all-powerful, all-truthful, all-loving, all-knowing deity to actual humanity. I want you to see how Luke lays this out. Look in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. In the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke doesn't even introduce you to Jesus yet. He talks to you about John the Baptist who is likely a cousin of Jesus and certainly his relative, who is going to prepare the way for him. John himself was miraculously born, though not virgin born. And in Luke chapter 2, Luke tells you the birth story of Jesus that Pastor Byron just read to you. In Luke chapter 2, at the end, you meet Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Now, obviously and clearly, with the knowledge that He is the very Son of God. And Luke 2.52 makes this amazing statement, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man because He's an actual human being born in an ordinary way from a woman into the world of His time. In Luke chapter 3, toward the end of the chapter, Luke wants you to see the genealogy of Jesus. So beginning with Jesus and counting backward, Luke dials it back through centuries of generations. And in verse 38, he says that Jesus, through his descendants, was the son of Venus, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is tempted and obeys God. In Luke chapter 5, he calls his first disciples, and then with the authority of God himself, he begins to heal disease and do things that only God can do. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralyzed man. In Luke chapter 6, he declares himself the Lord over the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6, also, he calls the 12 apostles, and in the red letters that follow, if you have a red letter Bible, Jesus begins to teach them what it means to follow him. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus does what only God can do and gives a widow's son his life back by raising him from the dead. In Luke chapter 8, women are following Jesus. He calms a storm with the authority of God himself. In Luke chapter 9, he sends out 12 apostles, ordinary men who are surprised to find that they have, through his gifting, the same kind of authority and power with which he has ministered. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus spells out what it's going to cost to follow him. 
Because hostility is now mounting, Jesus now sends out 72 in Luke chapter 10. And they marvel that they, ordinary to us anonymous people, are doing the same things that Jesus was doing. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, explains what it means to follow him again. He warns them in Luke chapter 12 against the Pharisees, tells them not to be anxious and worried in this increasingly hostile world, but to be calm and to follow him. There's more miracles. There's more teaching. At the end of Luke 13, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, knowing that soon they will kill him there. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the parable, the famous parable of the prodigal son, and it's a picture of the religious people resisting and hating Jesus, but humble, broken, sinful people coming to him. In Luke chapter 16, there's more teaching. He teaches about temptation in Luke chapter 17 and the kingdom of God that he's going to inaugurate. In Luke chapter 19, you find the famous story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wicked, corrupt man, but he turned away from his sin and trusted Jesus. And Jesus announced in Luke chapter 9, verses 9 and Uh, 19 verses 9 and 10, that all the promises that God ever made would apply to this formerly wicked man as well. In Luke chapter 20, the opposition to Jesus is white hot. He's being questioned and challenged and mocked, and they're attempting to trap him. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus foretells not only the destruction of Jerusalem that would come, but the destruction of the temple itself. In Luke chapter 22, an active plot to arrest Jesus and to murder him is forged. And in Luke chapter 22, toward the end of the chapter, he's betrayed, subjected to an embarrassment of a trial. He stands courageously and truthfully before Pilate, who embarrassingly, shamefully has him crucified. And in Luke chapter 24, he comes back from the dead just as he had been promising through the length of his ministry with these people that he had called to himself. That's the story of Jesus' life, according to Luke, who tells you in the first chapter that his intention was to make a careful investigation of the extraordinary things that happened around him and give an orderly written report to someone who was interested. And all of that, all of that, helps you focus on the extraordinary thing that we're celebrating at Christmas. That Jesus, for love, that the Father who sent Him for love, that the Holy Spirit who moved men to write it down so that you could check it out for yourself 2,000 years later. In other words, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the sake of love, made the Son to walk among us, to be born in an ordinary way among blood and water and crying and fear. That the eternal God could actually be cradled for the first time in a manger and had to be protected from the cold of night and increasing hunger and the actual human ignorance that characterized Him in His infancy where He didn't yet know who His Father was who his mother were, that needed to grow into wisdom and stature, grow in favor not only with God, but also with the people around him. Because, this is the greatest miracle of all, God, eternal God, the Son of God, has become a human being. Christmas tells us so much about Jesus. Let me show you here in Luke chapter 24 a few of those things. 
Read with me, please, Luke chapter 24. And I just want you to see, as miraculous as this is, how ordinary, how absolutely human and normal and physical and real and physically human Jesus actually is. He's not pretending to be a human being. The eternal God has taken on a human nature. Here's how that plays out in the last thing that Luke tells us, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Remember, this is after the resurrection. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? They said to him, They're going to pull the whole Gospel of Luke together in their reply. Listen. They said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Ready for a cross-cultural encounter? He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the sermon you wanted to hear, not this one. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Look at the humanity. He's not pretending the eternal Son of God is a human being who sits at a table and eats. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, those are the apostles minus Judas, who's dead. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he's known to them in the breaking of the bread. The way he broke the bread, the way he ate it, the way he served it to us. Let us see that it was him. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Are you getting the idea that the Son of God has a sense of humor? He's got these guys going. 
And for good reason, he wants them to learn something. And the story's in the Bible because he wants us to learn the same thing. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at the humanity. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations including Ivory Coast, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, which remember are wounded, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Wow. From birth to cross to glory, Jesus is making himself known. At a cost that you and I literally cannot begin to understand. Because the eternal Son of God, who is eternally God himself, lost nothing of his deity, but instead, at a specific time in history, roughly 2,000 years ago, when he was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary, he assumed, he added, he took to himself by his own choice a human nature. And he's not pretending to be human. The first thing that Christmas tells me about Jesus is the most amazing thing of all, that Jesus was always going to have a nature like ours, human. That though eternally God at a specific time in human history, he assumed, he appropriated, he took to himself a human nature and he was as entirely human as you and I are, but without sin. And Jesus shows us what human nature was always intended to be and what it will be again when he makes all things new. This was the plan. Here's the amazing part from the very beginning. Listen to Peter explain it. Peter, this ordinary fisherman who was outrun to the tomb, who was skeptical and doubtful and didn't believe and argued with Jesus and saw him heal countless mills and had Jesus borrow his boat so that Jesus could get in it and preach to a crowd that might have otherwise physically crushed him, Peter reflects years later after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of, what's it say there? Of you. Read the whole passage with me, beginning in verse 20. He, speaking of Jesus, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times 
for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This was all done for you. That's how much you're loved. There is no greater desire in the human heart than being known and loved. Everybody wants that. That's why we act a fool with little children. We want them to know with their very marginal beginning understanding that they're loved and accepted. I don't remember where I read it. I think it might be something a pediatrician told me that a smile is a learned behavior. And that if a child is developmentally on track, that child will smile so long as somebody smiles around them. That there are are no real problems and developmental delays, smiling, happy, laughing babies are that way and learn to be that way because they have smiling, laughing, happy people around them. That's why we act the way that we do. And Peter says, from before the foundation of the world, what was known to God before the world even existed was that Jesus was going to show up in human flesh on earth for our sake. And because he showed up, because he was manifested, now we are believers in God. And God sealed the story and proved that it was all true by raising Jesus from the dead and giving Jesus glory so that our faith, in other words, our trust and our hope could be in God himself. Here's how John explains it. Another ordinary fisherman, absolutely astonished that a man who grew up pulling fish out of the Sea of Galilee got to see God Himself in the flesh. Here's how John explains it in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in that first verse, John wants you to know the hardest thing to believe about Jesus, that Jesus is actually deity. He's not another prophet. God spoke through many prophets, the author of Hebrews says, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Not another prophet speaking about God, but God Himself in the flesh. God in a robe, God in sandals, God breaking bread, God sharing meals, God cooking breakfast on the beach when his startled disciples get back to the shore at the end of this gospel. It's absolutely amazing, and it's all for your sake because God loves you that much. Thirteen verses later in John chapter 1 verse 14 John wants you to know that this eternal God became a real human being who John saw and heard laugh and saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears and his hands touched. All of that in the first epistle of John. Here's how he says it in his gospel. Read it with me. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does Christmas tell me about Jesus? First and most, and most surprising and hardest to understand, Jesus has always been God. But in the incarnation, the biblical term we use to describe the conception and the birth of Jesus, in the incarnation, Jesus assumed a human nature, and get this, He still has it. 
Jesus is showing wounded hands and feet because they are still His. John says in his first letter, when we see Him, we shall be as He is because He still, believe it or not, still has a human nature, still has a body. See, there's much in our culture that I don't have time to explain that began in the first cult and lie about Christianity 2,000 years ago that says that this human body is irretrievably broken and fallen and evil. And even some Christians assume that Jesus put on humanity like an old coat and went to do the dirty work of saving mankind and then returned to glory and took the work coat off. And He hasn't. This is astonishing. Jesus has always been God, but He has not always been a human being. He became a human being some 2,000 years ago, and He remains God of God and man of man, an actual act, the actual deity and an actual human being to this day. And that was all for your sake because it was the only way for God to enter fully into your experience, suffer your temptations, and die for your sins. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas, that the cradle eventually leads to the cross. And it's not just that. I don't know if you notice, Jesus is doing two things at once and he does them on two separate occasions with two different groups. There's these guys on the road to Emmaus. And then there's the larger group of his disciples. And he does two things at once. He eats with them and he opens the Bible up to them and explains himself. Eating and teaching. Eating and teaching. Eating like a human being does. Teaching with the authority of God himself. And though what that tells me about Jesus is this. Jesus patiently explains himself to us throughout the whole Bible. I don't know if you noticed it. Look with me in verse 25. Back in Luke 24. In verse 25. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe everything... All that the prophets have spoken, was it, not ne- was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Leap forward to verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You understand the magnitude of what's happening here? These are observant Jews. Their entire life they've been going to the synagogue. The law of Moses has been opened and read and explained. The prophecies of Isaiah that the virgin will conceive and that God will be with us has been written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, it's explained every Saturday in the synagogue and people lived and died going to that synagogue in the hope that someday it would happen. And now Jesus in the lifetime of ordinary, as you can see, ignorant, fallible, easily confused people is making this incredible announcement. It's already happened. Everything that was written was ha- happened in your lifetime and it happened through me. John quotes Jesus in John chapter 14. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that he's still opening the Scriptures to people who will read them. 
Let me give you the context. In John chapter 14, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's got a long block of teaching with the rest, with what's left of his disciples. Judas is on his way to get armed men to come back to Jesus and arrest him and kill him. Jesus has a few hours left with his disciples. He knows they're frightened. He has repeatedly told them in the years of ministry that he shared with them that he would not much longer be with them. That the scriptures had been written announcing not only his glorious birth, but his sacrificial life-giving death. So right before being arrested, he says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you understand how loving that is? If you were facing the firing squad, if you knew they were coming to kill you, would your thoughts be on anybody else? Even now, before facing his own arrest, torture, and death, Jesus is saying, listen, it's all been written, it's all happening now. But the same Holy Spirit who gave us prophecy and gave us scripture about me, when I'm gone, the Father will send the Spirit in my place and He's going to open up the scriptures to you and the Spirit will remind you of the things that I taught you while I'm still here so that you will have peace. I'm not giving you a temporary peace that's burst on circumstances. I'm not giving you the peace of the world. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What does that mean for you? It means that Jesus, who is very much alive and who sent the Spirit along with the Father, Jesus is still teaching us through Scripture. That's why it's so important. I can't begin to stress this enough. It's vitally important that you open this Word of God as often as you can yourself. That you should consider this as Jesus said it, more important than the physical food you eat every day. Jesus said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the Word of God, that comes out of the mouth of God. The Father has spoken, the Spirit has written it down. It all testifies to Jesus, and Jesus says, if you'll read it, I'll remind you. The Spirit will do for you what Jesus did for the disciples on that road. In that crowded room, He will open your understanding and remind you of who Jesus is and speak to you truth and love that you literally can't find anywhere else. And the more you know Him, here's my discovery over decades of trying to follow Jesus. The more you know Him, the less room there is for fear. When I'm afraid and anxious, there's almost always one reason. I'm paying attention to myself, not to him. Now that's a hard one, because as I've quoted my pastor and predecessor at this church before, he used to say, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. It's hard not to think of yourself. It's natural. It's human. It's part of your nature. But sin twists it and makes, takes it too far and takes a natural self-love and self-regard into an obsession and an idolatry where it's all about what happens to me 
If you'll keep your sight instead on this eternal God who became a human being and somehow mysteriously still has a human nature for your own sake, so that someday you'll see Him, and in the resurrected, glorified body that Jesus gives you, you'll see Him with your own eyes. You'll have the privilege that the first disciples did of shaking His hand, dare I say, of bringing Him close and hugging Him because He's a real person. All for the sake of love. All written down in Scripture and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the Father and the Son both sinned, according to Jesus, in a different part of John's Gospel. He will open up your mind and teach you about Himself because He loves you that much. And then, the only surprising part, the only part that confounds me about the whole story, look in Luke 24. Verse 45, then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be, what's it say? Preached or proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Jesus took a human nature the eternal God became an actual, real, true human being. Not a coat being taken on and off, but a human being from that day to this. He opened up the Scripture that the Holy Spirit had inspired centuries earlier so that people can check it out for themselves as long as they have life. And after doing all of that, after spanning that gap, which is so much greater than one human being trying to communicate to another. This is God humbling Himself to communicate to His sinful creation that ignores Him, that denies Him, that wants little to do with Him. It's actually going to cost the Son of God His own life to communicate with us, and now it's all done. He's back from the grave, and then at the end He says, now you tell everybody. Does that strike you as surprising? I mean, look. Look around this auditorium for just a second. It's tiresome to look at me. I understand that. Look around. Look at, look at each other. This is the plan. After doing all that, Jesus, back from the dead with the life of God and the authority of God Himself, says to these ignorant, mistaken, doubting disobedient disciples, okay guys, here's the plan. From this point forward, you tell everybody what you just saw. That seemed like putting cheap tires on a Ferrari to you. <laughs> that seemed like Jesus is missing the boat in the last link of the story. He's not. The third thing that I learn about Jesus in the Christmas story is that Jesus makes us His witnesses to the whole world. That's why we give the offerings. That's why we're trying to reach this community. That's why young adults meet on, in here on Tuesday nights at 7.30. That's why we have ministries for children and for youth on Wednesday nights. Every bit of it, the counseling that goes on in the room beside this auditorium, where a lot of tears have been shed, Every sermon, every lesson, every prayer, every single thing we do has the goal, or should, if we're paying attention to Jesus, of giving witness to His death and resurrection to the whole world. 
Christmas Eve is a mere six days away. In a rapidly secularizing culture, you've been offered a gift of people who think Jesus is just a made-up story or a myth, who think this is all made up, a dumb story to make even dumber people feel better in a brutal world. You have an opportunity to invite them, to pray for them, so that maybe, just maybe, Jesus will open their mind to understand the Scriptures and they'll do what so many of you have done. They'll trust Him and love Him and discover that He really does forgive sins, and He really does give eternal life, and He does give peace beyond circumstances in this difficult world. So please, let's be His witnesses. Because Christmas means that Jesus is even better and greater than we understand. So let's tell everyone. Let's pray together. Could I invite you to think about your little world of friendships and family, co-workers, neighbors? Who do you need to be a witness to? Jesus became a human being, lived an ordinary life, faced every temptation, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and then turned to you, a believer, and said, now you tell him. Who are you telling? Who should you invite at Christmas Eve? Who should you be praying for? If it's just a matter of competing values, none of this has any point. But if Jesus really is all this and has done all this, we have to be his witnesses. We have to tell this story. What names come to mind? What faces come to mind when you think of your world that you should be inviting, that you should be witnessing to? You should be praying for. Christian, can I give you a moment to pray for them, please? And hey, friend, even if we haven't met, I'll dare to call you friend because I have a friendly question for you. Have you trusted Jesus in this way? Do you have his peace? See, the whole point of the Christmas story is to turn the story of God into a no-so situation for you instead of a hope-so. A lot of people are hoping. A lot of people are working on it. Jesus came and did all this so that you would know, not so that you would hope, so you would know that He's your Savior, that your forgiveness of sins has been received. Could I invite you to turn to Jesus right now and be saved if you haven't been? If you'll turn away from yourself, give up on yourself and trust Him instead. Through Jesus, as Peter said, you'll believe in God. You'll have eternal life. I invite you to do that right now.